This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we're going to talk about Dreadnoughtus, as well as some news. So first up in the news, out of Tucson, Arizona, at the Globe X Gem and Mineral Show, there was a recent arrest by Homeland Security Investigations, a division of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, who arrested a vendor who was selling fossils that were illegally taken out of China. They estimate that the fossil that he's being charged specifically for is valued at about $15,000, and he may have already sold a hadrosaur dinosaur egg for about $450. That's one of the more common dinosaur eggs since there were so many hadrosaurs around back then. It's pretty cut and dry in the Chinese case for what constitutes a legal sale of a fossil. They just consider any sale that has high scientific value to be illegal. So he's probably going to face charges, but um, there are a lot of fossils for sale there that are legal to sell, but the officials at the Globex Gem Show say that it's always hard to tell what people are bringing, and it's also hard to tell where it came from, so they leave it to the responsibility of the vendors. There's also an interesting story coming out of the mirror in the United Kingdom where there's a woman who has a phobia of dinosaurs and she's constantly worried about escape routes. So according to the story, she watched the first Jurassic Park movie and in particular the scene where the two children are in the kitchen and there are quote-unquote velociraptors chasing them around. She imagines that all the time, so she's constantly like running to her car and won't go out at night because she's afraid dinosaurs are going to attack her. And she has two young children, so it's making her life pretty miserable. She said she's tried to deal with it by going to one of those animatronic dinosaur shows and watching the sequels to the movie, but nothing's helping her. So we hope that she learns to love dinosaurs the way we do. Although I'll agree with her that if they were around now, they would definitely be very terrifying. In toy news, the 112th Annual North American International Toy Fair wrapped up recently, and every year they do a toy of the year, and for some reason they break it down into the boy toy of the year and the girl toy of the year, which is a little strange, but the boy toy of the year this year is a toy called the Zoomer Dino, which is made by Spin Master. 
and it's a remote control dinosaur that balances on two wheels and zips around pretty quickly which is probably why they call it the zoomer it apparently can learn a little bit and its voice and hand activated so the motions in front of it with the cameras in its snout make it react to the kids and then if you like tug on its tail it gets angry and it has different colors that it, its eyes turn they turn red when it's angry and another color when it's curious and another color when it's interacting so uh it's kind of interesting i think it'd be a good girl toy too the other interesting toy that was announced recently is a toy by Cognitoy. It's a talking dinosaur that's going to be made by Cognitoy. The creators won a contest put on by IBM called the IBM Watson Mobile App Developer Challenge, where they had hundreds of contestants who put in entries for a toy that grows and learns with children. The idea is building on the Watson brand that IBM has created. There's the Watson supercomputer that famously played on Jeopardy, and I think he won, actually. Yeah, I know he won at least one of them. While I was watching it, I was wondering, like, how fast does he click? Because it seemed like he always got the click in first. But Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's besides the point. So this toy obviously won't have a supercomputer in it. They're targeting it to be around $100.00. But the idea is that kids will talk to it and it will learn from them and it'll react and it'll be like a more advanced version of Siri where you talk to it and it talks back and learns some things. It doesn't look too much like a dinosaur. It looks more like Barney or maybe like a real plushy style dinosaur. But it is nonetheless a dinosaur, I guess, and interesting. So... I'll look forward to seeing that, too. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our dinosaur of the day is Dreadnoughtus, which was widely in the news in 2014. And Dreadnoughtus, the name comes from an old English word that means fear nothing. And the actually the full name of the species is Dreadnoughtus shrani, I believe is how it's pronounced. And that's based on the name of the big battleships in the 1900s and also Adam Schron, who helped fund the research of the species. This dinosaur was so big there was probably nothing that could have attacked it, and it may actually be the biggest dinosaur, at least that we know about so far. Dr. Kenneth Lacavara from Drexel University is the one who discovered Dretnatus, actually during excavations between 2005 and 2009, though it wasn't published and in the news till 2014. He found it in the Cerro Fortaleza Formation in Santa Cruz Province in Patagonia, Argentina. And part of the big news was, uh, in addition to this dinosaur being so big, Dreadnoughtus was also one of the most complete skeletons found. They found about 45% of the skeleton. Uh, most of the bones, like the ribs, were hollow. And having so many of the bones helped scientists determine how this dinosaur lived, its bone strength, how it even helped itself up, as well as how big it was. Yeah, as a side note, we went to the Drexel Museum in Philadelphia, and in their museum, they actually have what's it called Hattie. Oh, Hattie the dinosaur. Hattie. Ha- the hadrosaur. Yeah, I think it's called Hattie from Haddonfield, New Jersey. It's a hadrosaurus, and it's the first dinosaur skeleton that was ever mounted. It's really neat to see such an early dinosaur, and you can go across the border into New Jersey and see a little plaque where a Boy Scout put up, he he researched where the dinosaur was actually discovered and nailed down the point and put a little plaque up to show where it is. It's really cool. So Dreadnoughtus was about 85 feet long, 30 feet tall, and weighed about 65 tons. It's equivalent to about 12 elephants or 9 Tyrannosaurus rexes, which is pretty enormous, and it explains why they named it in such a way that it probably feared nothing, because if you're nine times the size of the one of the biggest predators, don't have much to fear. Blue whales still are the largest animals to have lived. They weigh roughly 150 tons, but there have been some discovered that were over 200 tons. And I always think it's kind of an unfair comparison, because living in the water, for one thing, they can cool down easier, because water transfers heat much easier. But for another thing, if you measure weight in an ocean versus weight on land, it's not the same. So your mass may be, you know, 130,000 kilograms, but your weight isn't 300,000 pounds when you're in the water because the water, the buoyancy of the water actually reduces the weight significantly. So, you know, if you've ever seen a beached whale, you understand that whales can't operate out of water because they're so heavy. 
one of the craziest things about the Dreadnoughtus skeleton that they found was after analyzing the bones, scientists concluded that this dinosaur was still growing when it died, and it actually probably died at a young age because of a catastrophic flood, so there's no way to know how big this dinosaur could have gotten. Yeah, there's a great TED Talk that we've mentioned before about young dinosaurs that was put on by Jack Horner, and he talks about just how you can tell that in the bone. It basically comes down to the texture of the fossil. So I guess when they cut this open or looked at a broken part of it, they saw that young dinosaur thing. Makes you wonder how big it could have been. So researchers were able to measure the femur and the humerus from the dreadnoughtus, and they consider these two bones to be the gold standard for calculating the mass of a four-legged animal. So when they looked at the those two bones, they estimate 65 tons for its weight, and according to Blackavera, no other dinosaur measured that way was as big. So there's the little asterisk there for the measured that way, because a lot of people contend that Argentinosaurus and possibly other titanosaurs were larger, but Argentinosaurus in particular, they had a partial femur. I don't think they ever discovered a humerus, and then it was mostly um, vertebrae that they found. So you can get a, a pretty good estimate at the size of it, but really what you're doing is you're just comparing the vertebrae to another vertebrae, and you're just assuming that everything's scaled up evenly. So if you have the humerus and the femur, you can actually tell how much weight it was supporting and moving around. So it's a, it's a much better indication. And if you look at the estimates of Argentinosaurus at places that they claim it was the largest dinosaur, there'll be huge variability in the weight. They'll say, oh, it was between 60 and 100 tons. Whereas because we have the accurate measurements of Dreadnoughtus, we say, oh, it was about 65. <laughs> So it gives you some insight into just how much more we know about Dreadnoughtus than some of these other dinosaurs. And because Dreadnoughtus was so big and found in a remote location, it took Lacavara and his team four summers to excavate. That's why 2005 to 2009. And they had to use mules to get, some, uh, to get the bones to a truck. In 2009, they used an ocean freighter to move the skeleton to Philadelphia so they could prepare the fossils and analyze them. And eventually, they're going to move the fossils to the Museo Padre Molina in Rio Gallegos in Argentina. So because of the completeness of the skeleton, scientists also may be able to model Dreadnoughtus' breathing, figure out its blood pressure, and they've already estimated about how much food it could eat, roughly half a ton a day or a thousand pounds. They also may determine the proportions and shapes of the giant sauropods, Dreadnoughtus had a shorter, more muscular tail, about 30 feet long, and a longer neck than they expected. The neck was about 37 feet long. This probably allowed the dinosaur to stand in one place to eat, which would have been important because it, since it, as Garrett said, it had to eat half a ton of food every day. So scientists also found a single cylindrical tooth from the Dreadnoughtus, and it was about an inch long. Dreadnoughtus had rows of these teeth, and with these types of teeth... Dreadnoughtus would have used them to strip vegetation from branches and plants rather than chewing them. We talked earlier about teeth batteries and how you use those to chew, but these peg-like teeth is what you use to strip. Um, Lacovera said that their stomachs 
were larger than a draft horse. Which is a type of horse specifically used for farming, um, so they're very big, and sometimes they're called gentle giants. <laughs> so uh, the stomach was so big you could fit a whole horse in it, which is just crazy. And because it was so big and they were taking in a 1,000 pounds of food a day... Without chewing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they figure that the food probably sat in their stomachs for up to months before being fully digested. Dreadnoughtus had longer forearms than other titanosaurs, which is the group it's in, but they weren't much longer than its hind limbs, so it probably held its head pretty close to horizontal. And it strikes me as interesting compared to, we were talking about Spinosaurus the other day, and how it had short forelimbs, and that made it easier for it to, you know, skim off the top of water. So it seems like Dreadnoughtus probably would have left its head a little higher up, closer to its full height, so it would be stripping off the plants at that height rather than grazing like a cow kind of thing. Dreadnoughtus's tail had some very unique characteristics. Uh, for example, the first vertebrae had a ridge on its ventral surface called a keel, and part of its respiratory system was in the bases of the neural spines in the first third of the tail. It had uh, cavities that were probably caused from contact with air sacs. And according to Lacavera, the body weight of modern animals correlates to internal body temperature, but at 65 tons, the body temperature would actually be much higher than the temperature that cooks meat. So these air sacs probably helped Rodnatus fan themselves on the inside. Yeah, sometimes people talk anecdotally about birds or dinosaurs being cold-blooded, but that has to do with the metabolism of the animal, and it doesn't actually have to do with the literal temperature. With anything that big and moving at all, the energy being produced inside and all that insulation from all the meat and fat and everything would really heat up the animal. So it's pretty fascinating to think about the ways that it would cool down. These air sacs are definitely one way and also the long neck and the long tail would have helped it regulate its body temperature. I kind of think of them as like fins on a heat sink or a radiator, I guess, sticking out there, helping to cool it down. Another way to put that is that it had more surface area per volume when it had the long neck and the long tail than it would have otherwise. So a couple other things about Dreadnoughtus's tail. Its neural spines had distinct ridges. And like modern animals with tails like crocodiles, Dreadnoughtus had bones below its vertebrae called chevrons, and these bones connected in a Y shape. One of the coolest things about Dreadnoughtus, the study of Dreadnoughtus, is that Lacavera and his team made laser scans of all the bones found, and they used 3D imagery to figure out how the dinosaur moved, and they used 3D printers to create models at a one-tenth scale. And all of these 3D scans are available for free as PDF files on Figshare, and we'll share the link at our website, I Know Dino, when we post the transcript of this episode. I need to see these models. If they're one-tenth scale, that still means they're almost 10 feet long. be a pretty cool dinosaur. Maybe we need to get a 3D printer just so we can <laughs> print some dinosaur replicas. That's a pretty cool idea. So Titanosaurians are the group that Dreadnoughtus is in. And it's the group of very large sauropods. They were huge herbivores that lived during the last 30 million years of the Mesozoic era, or to put it another way, at the end of the Cretaceous. 
Some titanosaur species are the largest land-living animals ever discovered, but in many cases, scientists have only found incomplete fossils like Argentinosaurus that we mentioned earlier. So you may have guessed the name Titanosaur comes from the titans of ancient Greek mythology. Uh, the family Titanosauridae was named after the species Titanosaurus, which was based on an incomplete fossil. They actually only had a partial femur and two incomplete caudal vertebrae found by Richard Lidecker in 1877. But understandably, some scientists say that's not enough information for Titanosauridae to be a genus. So Titanosaurs were a group of sauropods that lived about 90 to 66 million years ago, and they were dominant herbivores. They replaced other sauropods like Diplodocids and Brachiosaurids. And sometimes I'll look back at some of my favorite dinosaurs and wonder why were they only around for, you know, two, five, ten million years when the length of dinosaurs on Earth was so much longer. And it's because they were continually evolving and newer species would replace them. So really, these titanosaurs were the epitome of evolution in large herbivorous dinosaurs. Titanosaur fossils have been found in all continents, including Antarctica, although Antarctica at the time wasn't where it is now. And in fact, most of the titanosaurs that have been found were found in the southern continents, which at the time was part of the supercontinent Gondwana. And that includes Argentina, which is where Argentinosaurus and Dreadnoughtus were found. Compared to other sauropods, titanosaurs had small heads, but their heads were also wide. And they had large nostrils and crests formed by nasal bones. And titanosaurs had spoon-like or peg or pencil-like teeth that were very small, but they were not at all picky eaters. They actually had a very broad diet that included cycads and conifers, as well as, more surprisingly, uh, palms and grasses, which included the ancestors of rice and bamboo. And this is just more evidence that dinosaurs and grasses evolved together, as we uh, discussed in the news in the last episode, dinosaurs that probably ate hallucinogenic fungus. So titanosaurs tended to have average-length necks, at least as far as sauropods are concerned, which is a pretty long neck, and whip-like tails, but their tails weren't as long as diplodocids, and they had smaller pelvises compared to other sauropods. But they did have wider chests, which gave them a broader stance, and also made them more stocky. But their forelimbs were longer than their hind limbs, and they had solid backbones instead of hollowed-out backbones. They also had a more flexible spinal column, so they could probably move a little better and possibly even rear up. Scientists have found from skin impressions that titanosaurs had small bead-like scales around larger scales, and one species, Saltosaurus, even had bony plates like an ankylosaurus. Some titanosaurs may have used their osteoderms to store minerals during droughts. And I think that's a pretty good fun fact, but if that wasn't interesting enough, uh, we have another fun fact. So scientists used to theorize that some dinosaurs had two brains, and the second brain, they figured, was actually in their butt <laughs> at the base of the tail, to be more specific. One of these examples is Stegosaurus. They talk about how small Stegosaurus's brain was, and they figured it had a second brain in its tail, which would allow for such a small brain in its head. But more recently, there are, there are scientists arguing that it may have been the location of a glycogen body, 
which is the same as a structure that's in modern birds and used to supply glycogen to the animal's nervous system. Glycogen is just one of the ways that an animal can store glucose for energy, and I guess the nervous system needs it just like the rest of the body. Not entirely <laughs> an expert on that, but I guess it makes more sense than having a second brain down there. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. From now until March 15th, we're hosting a big dinosaur podcast giveaway, and prizes include a $50 gift card to iTunes, a free copy of Dr. Anthony J. Martin's book, Dinosaurs Without Bones, and a free copy of the documentary Dinosaur 13. There's no purchase necessary to enter our giveaway. If you go to inodino.com and find a post that says podcast giveaway, you'll see you can enter by leaving us a review on iTunes, joining our mailing list, tweeting us, or following us at I Know Dino, and looking at our Facebook page. Until next time. Good day.